One of the great challenges when studying the Bible is remembering that every time you open up the Bible, the text that is before you is always between 2,000 and 4,000 years old. Therefore, judging what you are reading by 21st century eyes or Western American mores and standards and values is not just unwise, it is basically foolish. That said, it is hard for us to read these passages without kind of shaking our head and asking, what on earth is going on in this thing? What is this all about? And that certainly was the thought that I had as I was preparing to teach through Deuteronomy chapter 1 and reading through this text recently. And then after I read through it, and it's kind of a, a mishmash of all kinds of different things that are going on, I decided to just quickly record a YouTube video, which maybe you saw it on our YouTube channel here, just asking people who are a part of the church or who subscribe to our YouTube channel to read through Deuteronomy chapter 21 and then to email me or text their, their thoughts and their questions on this passage. So I got a number of responses from people on this and it was exactly what I anticipated. People asking questions like, what on earth is going on here? Why would people be guilty of shedding innocent blood if they were not involved in the act of killing the person? Why would God allow his people to force a beautiful captive prisoner of war woman to marry one of his people? That seems like the height of absurdity. Why would God allow for this? Why does God allow for multiple marriages, two wives, one who is loved and one who is unloved? Or if your son is stubborn and rebellious, then he really can be put to death. I mean, these are some of the things that we see in this passage, kind of like a, a really quick overview of some of the strange things that we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And so that's the passage that we're gonna be looking at today. There are some certain head scratchers in this passage, and we will see more head scratchers in the chapters that follow after this as well. There are a lot of what you would call, in fact, they're even labeled in some Bibles, the headings of these passages are like miscellaneous laws. And God is informing his people how they are to govern themselves in the promised land. And as we try to make sense of some of the things that are before us in these chapters, I want to suggest to you that the miscellaneous instructions given here are probably having to do with things that Moses had to deal with during Israel's wilderness wanderings, or they were miscellaneous instructions addressing the customs that the children of Israel had picked up along the way during their 400 years sojourning as slaves in Egypt. But when you're looking at this, one of the things that I think a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 21 and the passages that follow, one of the things that these passages teach us is that oftentimes it is easier to get the Israelite out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of the Israelite. The customs and the laws, the statutes and the guidelines that we encounter in these passages are going to seem rather strange to us because we see all of this through the Western lens of America in 2022. But the things addressed in these chapters were issues that directly affected the daily lives of the people that Moses was leading 3,400 years ago. 
And while they are strange to us, they teach us, or at the very least they reveal, that God has something to say about the weird things that we encounter in our daily lives, which is in reality a comfort to me because the things that you face on your week-to-week -week basis on a college campus or a high school campus or in a, on a construction site or in a corporate office building or in your neighborhood or within your family, they're not the same kind of things that people encountered even four decades ago or 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. But when we see that God is dealing directly with the things that the children of Israel were facing 3,400 years ago, then it comforts me to know that I think that God is going to give us principles or various things to help us govern our lives in the kind of modern things that they would never have even imagined that, that we kind of have to face. So when we read about Israel having to deal with a murder and the murderer is not found, we need to recognize that God was providing a different way for his people, the children of Israel, to deal with a situation than they had encountered previously. The way that things were done in the other nations around them or the way that things were done in Egypt, God is calling them to live differently. And when we look at how they were to deal with female prisoners of war, Again, there was one way that something like that was dealt with 3,400 years ago among the people around the children of Israel, the Canaanite peoples, but God had a different way that he expected that his people would deal with it. And when I say that oftentimes it is easier to get the Israelite out of Egypt than it is to get the Egypt out of the Israelite, I mean that the temptation of the people of Israel was to continue to do things the way that things had always been done around them or how things were being done by the people who lived in the nations next door to them. So we need to recognize that God is calling them to be different. God wants to transform his people. He wants to make them truly his people walking after his ways. And while direct application from these passages is nearly impossible because you're probably not going to find a bride among prisoners of war and your inheritance is probably not gonna be divided between the children of your you know, multiple wives, one whom you love more than the other. There are some principles though that I think that we can glean from this passage. And one key principle, and I apologize, this is kind of a long one, but I think that it is an important thing for us to recognize as we go through these passages, is that God's people are to be governed by God's ways and not the ways and customs of their old life or of the people around them. The way that your neighbor does things, the way that your coworker or partner does things is going to be different than the way that you are to do things because you are one of God's people. So God's people are to be governed by God's ways and not the ways and customs of their old life or the people who live next door to them or around them. Now, why is this important? Because as I've already said, it is easier for God to get the children of Israel out of Egypt or to have redeemed them out of Egypt under Moses than it would be for God to get all the ways, traditions, customs, and mindsets of the Egyptians out of the children of Israel. In fact, as you go through the remainder of the Old Testament after Deuteronomy, which is kind of our general plan of what we're gonna be doing here at Cross Connection Church over the next several months and years, is we're gonna see that they, they kind of fall back to their old ways. And that's exactly what happens with us. It is true for us as well. It's true for us that we have a, a way that we used to live and God calls us to live differently. And it takes one kind of salvation 
for God to save me from the punishment of sin. That's what was dealt with with Jesus on the cross. And it is another kind of God's salvation, still an aspect of his salvation, for God to deliver and sanctify me from the power of sin in my life. I, I don't even fully know when exactly I experienced that justification experience of salvation where I trusted in Jesus Christ. It was as I was a, a young child, I know that much, but I don't know the exact day or month or year. Maybe you remember the specific day when you raised your hand or you went forward at some sort of crusade or church and you accepted Christ. And at that moment, you were saved from the punishment of sin. Jesus dealt with the punishment for your sin on the cross. That's what we call substitutionary atonement. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He was the substitute. He dealt with the punishment for your sin. But after you are saved and you become a child of God, now God wants to transform your conduct and he wants to sanctify you completely. And so that takes an entire different kind of his work by his spirit and by his word in our lives. That's what he wants to do. So with all of that as a preface, and it, it's kind of a, a big introduction to a really strange passage of scripture. Look with me, if you would, at just the opening verses of Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning at verse one. We read this, if anyone is found slain, so you find a dead guy lying in a field in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him. So there's a murder, but we don't know who the murderer is. Then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man, the dead guy, to the surrounding cities or settlements or villages. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer, a young cow, which has not been worked and which has not pulled a yoke. So this is a, a young calf that has never really plowed the fields or done anything. The elders of that city shall bring the young cow, the heifer down to a valley with flowing water, which has neither been plowed nor sown and they shall break the cow's neck there in the valley. And then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the dead heifer, the cow, whose neck was broken in the valley. And then they shall answer and say, our hands have not shed this blood. They're making a vow and an oath, nor have our eyes seen it. We have not witnessed it. Provide atonement, Moses says in verse eight, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel, and atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood of this slain person who had died. So you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. As I said, this is strange. What on earth is going on here in this passage? What is this all about? Well, Moses here gives direction for how to deal with a situation if there is a murderer, but the murderer is not found. How do you deal with an unsolved murder? And I think it is safe to bet that there was a customary way of dealing with such situations in the ancient Near East, the customs or the traditions of Egypt, where the children of Israel had come out of 40 years prior to this, or the customs and the traditions of the people of the land of Canaan, or the people of the Ammonites and the Moabites. There were different ways that people would deal with these things. In fact, I think based on some of the things that you find in the Old Testament, it looked something like this. The old way of doing things in the ancient Near East was if there was an individual that was found slain, murdered in a field, and then you couldn't find the murderer, you would find the city or the village or the settlement nearest to the slain individual, and then you would go and just kill every single person in that city 
because there was a wicked thing that had taken place and you wanted to deal with that problem. So instead of there being a court case, instead of there being an investigation, you just say, hey, there's a slain guy over here in this field and there's a settlement just over that hill. That's pretty close. We're just going to go and kill every single male in that city for this murder that has taken place. Now, you may think, come on, they didn't really do that. But actually, if you read some passages in the Old Testament, you find that that's exactly what would take place. In Genesis chapter 34, you find this crazy story about the men of a Canaanite city. They were all killed for the rape of Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And if you read in the book of Judges, eventually we're going to get there. Judges chapter 19 and 20, you will see the same form of justice brought upon a city called Gabeah for a very similar crime. And if you read Joshua 22, two and a half tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel, two and a half tribes in Israel were almost completely annihilated by the nation of Israel because of supposed idolatry. There wasn't even an investigation. They just got themselves ready for war. The other rest of the tribes, they came to kill the two and a half tribes completely because they supposed they might be involved in idolatry. So corporate guilt and corporate justice without a trial, that was pretty standard fare in the ancient Near East. But here in this passage, God says, that's not how you are going to do things as my people when you come into the land. The problem is, as I've said, it is easier to get Israel out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of Israel. So how were things to be different in Israel? If there was a murder and the murderer was not found, Moses says, here's what's going to happen. The elders of the nation of Israel and the judges, we've talked about them previously, they were to go and find the nearest settlement or city, but not for retaliation, not for retribution. The elders of the city were to go and find the elders of the nearest city to the person who had died. And then the elders of that nearest city of the person who was slain, they were to take a calf that had not yet been used in the fields and they were to bring that down to a valley with flowing water that had not been utilized for plowing and planting and they were to break the neck of that cow there in that valley. Now again, what on earth is this all about? What, what's the whole point of this? Well, as strange as this may seem to us, and it seems totally strange to us looking at this through the, the lens of American eyes in 2022, there's a lot of things that are going on here in this passage. A human life had been taken. And if the murderer was not known, the murderer's life could not be taken. The normal way was if they knew who the murderer was, then it's capital punishment. The murderer would be put to death because murder was a capital crime then as it sometimes is today. But if the murderer was not known, innocent life had been shed, the life of the person who was slain, and an atonement needed to be made in the form of, in this passage, a calf, a young cow. But it's kind of an interesting atonement that's taking place here. The calf was a young cow that had never pulled a yoke. And this is costly. There was great potential value from a calf like this, a young, healthy cow that had never pulled a yoke. It's got a, a bit of a life ahead of it. And so this is, there's cost to this. But not only is there cost in this cow that's going to be slain, but also we read here about a valley that has a flowing source of water that is a perfect place, a perfect piece of land for plowing and planting. It, it had great potential value as well. So just like this animal that is going to be killed has great potential value, the valley floor where it has flowing water, this is a rich piece of property for plowing and planting. It has great potential value. But once the dead animal would be slain there in that place, 
then that piece of ground would be unclean. Not forever, but for a period of time. And those elders who are really taking care of this whole atonement from the nearest settlement or city, they also would become unclean for a time as a result of not just the murder, but now the act of atoning for that by taking the life of this animal here in this field. All of this, we're told by Moses, was to put away the guilt of innocent blood among the people, and it was doing what was right before the Lord. All of this that is taking place in this passage is a sobering reminder of the weightiness and value of life. There was a life of an individual or an innocent human being that had been taken. Someone had murdered them, but we don't know who the murderer is. But we need to recognize that this life had value. This life had dignity. How are we going to do that? We're going to take the life of an animal that also has some value. It could produce some money or some return to the owners of it in that city. And this portion of land also has value. It could return some sort of value to them but we're recognizing the value of this life that was taken. It's not a, a small matter that life was taken. So all of this is to be a sobering reminder of the weightiness and value of life. But it was also, as I said, a reform from the traditional or customary retribution, the justice of the day, where there would have likely been bloodshed and punishment. There is now a recompense and a forbearance. For God's people, atonement and mercy were to be valued above retribution. And that's an awesome thing. I just want you to think about that for a moment. For God's people, it was to be atonement and mercy that were going to be exalted and valued above just instant retribution and punishment. Now, that's not to say, I'm not saying that there would not be justice. Where there was a crime and a clear criminal, then justice was to be served and justice would be served under the law. But in the case that there was a crime, such as murder, but the murderer was not known, was not found, then atonement was still necessary. You still needed to recognize that something bad had taken place and those who were nearest to it needed to recognize that there needed to be a payment. There needed to be an atonement. There, there was a cost to this, but there was also mercy involved in this. There was a way to deal with this without just destroying every single man that lived in the nearest settlement. And, and we, we find this same principle carried over into the New Testament. Again, a lot of times when we're reading Old Testament passages, to just literally apply these things in a, in a standard way for us thousands of years later, we need to look really at the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law, and find the underlying principle. And in the New Testament, we find this principle carried over where we read in the book of James, in James chapter 2, that ultimately mercy triumphs over judgment. And for me and for you, that's really good news because our God is holy and our God is just and he will judge sin. And yet, when he introduced himself by name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, what is the first word that he chose to use to introduce himself? Exodus 34 verse 6 says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful. Among all of the innumerable attributes of God, which he could have chosen to use as his first identifying, introducing word. He doesn't say the Lord, the Lord God, holy. He doesn't say the Lord, the Lord God, just. Although those things are true. God is just and God is holy. But he chose to say the Lord, the Lord God, merciful. And for God's people, he wanted them to also lead with mercy. The, the previous way if there was a murder and you didn't know who the murderer was, you'd look for the nearest city and you'd go in and wipe them out. That seems like justice, potentially. That seems like retribution, for sure. 
But God says, no, when, when you do this, it's going to be different. For my people, there's going to be mercy and atonement. Now, again, as I said, this is a strange passage. We're going to see more of this. Deuteronomy 21 has all these miscellaneous rulings that are strange. And they're strange to our eyes. But they were dealing with specific issues that the people had faced during their wilderness wanderings or during their time in Egypt. And now God is saying, you are going to be different. So look with me at the next kind of strange thing. We pick it up there in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10. When you go out to war, and trust me, this is a very strange one. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers your enemies into your hand and you take them captive, so you've taken prisoners of war, and you, as one of the soldiers, you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire her and would like to take her for your wife. Then you shall bring her home to your house and she shall shave her head and trim her nails and she shall put off the clothes of her captivity and remain in your house and mourn her father and her mother for a full month. And then after that, after all of these things, the shaving of the head, the, cha or the cutting of the nails, the putting on mourning clothes, after that you may go into her to be her husband. That's when the consummation of the marriage happens. There's a delay here. And she then shall be your wife. And it shall be, verse 14, if you have no delight in her, then you shall, you shall set her free. Note this, but you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. As I said, Strange things here in Deuteronomy chapter 21. This strange ruling falls under the heading in a number of uh, Bibles as War Brides, which aside from being a great name for, you know, an all-female band maybe, is absolutely bizarre. To our eyes and ears here in 2022, this looks completely insane. Suppose that you go out to battle against your enemies and you are victorious in battle, and to the victor go the spoils. So now you're bringing back the spoils of war, and among those are all the prisoners that you've taken. And suppose you see a very beautiful woman among the captives, and suppose you desire her and would like to make her your wife. In ancient Israel, you could actually do that. And when we get to the book of Joshua, we're actually going to see something like this take place at Jericho, which is going to be an interesting story there in that passage. So in ancient Israel, you could actually take that captive, beautiful woman and make her your wife. However, there is a ruling from Moses as to how this is going to take place. First, you have to bring her into your home, to your house. And next, you have to shave her head and trim her nails. And third, she's going to put off the clothes of her old life from that old city, wherever she was. And she's going to put on clothes of mourning to mourn her father and her mother, whether they're still alive or dead, for a full month. She's going to go through a ritual mourning. And then after that, then you can marry her and consummate the marriage. Now, by this point, if you haven't like thought, like kind of hashtag WTH, you are probably not paying attention. But if you are thinking hashtag WTH, then I want to remind you that you're thinking like an American in 2022 and not like an Israelite in 1400 BC. Now, there was one final thing that Moses said there in verse 14. It shall be that if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you certainly shall not sell her for money, not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. Suppose that at the end of the month, before the marriage is consummated, you say, well, I don't really want to marry her, then she's not your property. This one that you've taken captive 
after you have been victorious over the city where she lived as an enemy, she's not your property. You can't sell her. You must set her free. You can't treat her brutally because you've humbled and humiliated her by cutting off her hair and trimming her nails and causing her to go through mourning and all these sorts of things. You've humiliated her. And so now you need to set her free. Now, I'm fairly certain that you probably are not seeing it quite yet because, like I said, you're thinking like an American in 2022. But this strange passage teaches us something very important. For God's people, even a woman shamed and taken captive had dignity and value. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, how's that even possible here in this passage? I, I don't see how that teaches this in this passage. But let me explain to you how it does. How do you think women who were taken as prisoners of war were typically dealt with in the world of the ancient Near East 3,400 years ago? You don't even need to look at the world of the ancient Near East in 1400 BC to answer that question. What sort of atrocities await a woman when an invading army comes into their region or their home today? Do you think that she is going to experience some merciful time of mourning and a waiting period? Do you think that there's going to be a time giving her an opportunity to mourn her old life or the passing of her family? Or do you think that she's just gonna be ravished, brutalized, and left for dead? Now do you see it? I think you probably do. This may not seem like a merciful thing here. It may not seem that a woman is given dignity and value here in this passage, but you're seeing it through 2022 eyes. And you need to see it through eyes from 3,400 years ago. A woman in that situation was not going to be dealt with kindly. And here, Moses says, for my people, it's going to be different. For God's people, even a woman ashamed or who is shamed and taken captive had dignity and value. And if you desire to marry her, then you're going to give her the time for mourning and all of those things. And if you decide you don't want to, you're going to release her and she's going to be a free woman and you're not going to sell her. She is not your property. Like I said, strange things here in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 21. Look, look at the next one in verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved, and they both have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved, and if the firstborn son is of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day that he gives his possessions to his sons as an inheritance, that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, before we look at the specifics of what is going on here in this strange passage of scripture, let me begin by saying that the Bible's reporting of events is not the endorsement of those events. What do I mean by that? If the Bible reports that people in Old Testament times, including some of the patriarchs of Israel, had multiple wives. It is reporting that there was polygyny. It's not endorsing the practice. It's not saying that it's okay. It's just saying that this is the way things were in ancient times and it still exists today. Because when we think about marriage as God designed it, multiple or plural marriage was not the way that God designed it. Jesus teaches us that in the New Testament. He said, he who made them from the beginning made them both male and female and said, for this reason, a man, singular, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, singular, and the two shall become one flesh. The teaching of the scriptures is that marriage is intended to be one man and one woman for life joined together as one. But the practice of sinful humanity has been polygynous. 
since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So, so that's kind of just a, a sideline issue here because I, we've had questions on the questions podcast that Pastor Mark and I do about plural marriage and, you know, is that an okay thing because we see it in the Bible. Again, the Bible is reporting that these things took place. It's not endorsing that these things are okay. God's design for marriage is one man and one woman joined together for life. But back to the specifics of this strange passage. What if a man has two wives? And one of those wives, he likes more than the other. But what if the less loved wife has a son, the firstborn, before the more loved wife? How do you handle the right of the firstborn? Now, for us, the right of the firstborn may seem like a strange thing because a lot of times in our culture here in the West in 2022, inheritance is oftentimes passed equally to your children. If you have boys or girls, it's generally passed equally to your children. But in ancient Israel and in pretty much all of the ancient Near East, the inheritance would be given as a double portion or the primary would be the one who is the firstborn son. So the firstborn son who would take all of that and be the one who really governed the affairs of the larger family after the death of the father. So the firstborn status is a really big deal in the Old Testament. And God here says, if there are a guy who has two wives and one is loved and the other is unloved and the unloved wife has the firstborn son, then you have to pass the firstborn status to the unloved firstborn son first. This may sound really strange to us, but if you go back and you read the book of Genesis, you'll find that the very first children of the children of Israel fell into this exact situation and scenario. For the rest of the story, you can go and read in Genesis about Jacob, who ultimately his name was changed to Israel. And Jacob had two wives and two concubines. His two wives were Leah and Rachel. Leah was the unloved wife and Rachel was the loved wife, but Leah was the one who bore him a firstborn son. And so you can actually go and see this was a part of Israel's history. They're dealing with something that was actually an issue for the children of Israel. So how do you handle the right of the firstborn if the firstborn son is of the less loved wife? Moses' instruction here in this passage is clear. The firstborn of the unloved wife is the firstborn and is the one who takes the firstborn status. And if you say like, what on earth does this have to do with me in 2022? That's a great question. And here's my best answer for it. For God's people, God's laws were not subjectively flexible based upon the whims, desires, or preferences of his people. And this is so important because I think that sometimes we wrestle with this as well. We think that we can kind of fudge a little bit because we're God's people. And so sometimes we hold standards for other people that we don't hold for ourselves. That's called Phariseeism. We see that in the New Testament, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there is a real problem with this. But for God's people, God's laws are not to be subjectively flexible based upon your whims, desires, or preferences. Like, well, I'm a child of God, so I can kind of fudge on these things and it's okay because I'm one of God's chosen people. It doesn't get to be like that. You do not get to choose whether or not you follow his ways based upon how you feel about it. So, how about another really strange passage? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 21, beginning at verse 18. There we read, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders of their city at the city gate, which is where judgment would take place, and they shall say to the elders of his city, 
This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And then all of the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. Like I've said before, 21st century eyes reading this passage really struggle to make sense of it. Like what is going on here? One person who I sent out that video asking people to read through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21 and respond back, one person said that this passage seems to be contradictory to the teachings of Christ concerning the prodigal son. And that's a reasonable observation and question about this passage. The idea that you as a father or a mother would take your stubborn, rebellious and disobedient son after trying to discipline that son who is now list, not listening to you, you take them to the elders of your city to, put, to be put to death for the transgression of the fifth commandment, which said, honor your father and your mother. It seems to be ridiculous. Or at least it seems to be to us unfathomable. But the point of application for this passage is not a literal adherence to capital punishment for disobedient children. Rather, it is, I think, a very simple and profound truth. For God's people, his laws apply equally to all, even for those that you'd like to give a pass. This is a difficult one for us, but the principle continues in the New Testament as well, where we are told in a number of places, these kind of words, Romans chapter two, verse 11, there is no partiality with God. Galatians chapter two, verse six, God shows personal favoritism to no man. Colossians chapter three, verse 25, there is no partiality with God. God shows no favoritism. The problem is, is that a lot of times we kind of do. As I said, this Phariseeism, we will look at other people and apply standards to them that we will not apply to ourselves or to those closest to us, to our loved ones, to our kids. And here God says, listen, that's not how it's going to be for you. You love your kids because they're your kids, but the law applies to them equally. And if they are breaking the law, then they need to be dealt with. A lot of really important things here for God's people. Another strange passage. Look at verse 22 of Deuteronomy chapter 21. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. There is a lot that I could say on this verse as it has connection to Christ and his crucifixion, but the fullness of that teaching will probably need to wait for another day. But the Apostle Paul in Galatians, he cites this exact verse from Deuteronomy chapter 21, talking about Christ when he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Right out of here in Deuteronomy chapter 21 is exactly where Paul takes that. But aside from the glorious connection to Christ who became a curse for us, what does this strange passage of scripture say to us today? It seems that this hanging on a tree here in Deuteronomy chapter 21 was not the form of execution. Hanging people on a tree was not the form of execution in history till long after the time of Moses. But the act is apparently done potentially after execution as a further embarrassment or a shame to be brought upon the offender and his family. So, so here's the picture. Let's say there's a capital crime and you're gonna put this person to death. And the typical way of putting someone to death in ancient times was to stone them to death. We already saw that with the rebellious child. 
But here, as a further embarrassment or shame upon that offender, that criminal, they would hang them naked. They would hang them in a tree or something naked. And it would be an embarrassment to that individual and their family. And there are a number of examples of this in the Old Testament. Uh, specifically, the one that comes to mind is after the death of King Saul, the Philistines hung Saul's naked body on the walls of Beth Shane. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 31. But Moses says that that's not how it is to be with my people. The Philistines did that to, to uh, King Saul, but God says you're not to be like the Philistines. For God's people, the judgments of the law are not for humiliation, but for purification. We do not use the judgments of the law, the judgments of God, as a way of exposing and embarrassing hypocrites or shaming sinners. However, that is kind of the way that Pharisees work, isn't it? We use the law to kind of point the finger at other people and to show just how hypocritical or how foolish or shameful they are. But that's not how God wants his law to be used. For sure, there are some that use the law of God in that way, but that's not the way it's to be for you. The Apostle Paul would say, in the New Testament book of Timothy, he says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The judgments of God are given to direct us to God and to ready us for his sanctification. They are given to help make God's people more like the God whom they are called by. They're not given for humiliation, but they're given for purification. And so, Moses makes it very clear here. You're not to use the law and all of these statutes of putting someone to death just so that you can humiliate them and their family. Instead, these things are to cleanse you and the people of the land and to cleanse the land. And for us, this is a really important thing for us to learn. And although there are some really strange things here in Deuteronomy chapter 21, these miscellaneous laws here in this passage, they're really important. The, the lessons that we are taught from these passages are important. God wants to change us. He was redeeming Israel from Egypt, but now he needs to remove the, the mindset of Egypt out of the children of Israel so that they would walk in his ways. And here he says, these are the ways that you as my people are to walk in my ways. And God help us to learn the lessons of these stranger things here in the law. Because though we may not apply these things literally in our lives today, the principles that are underneath these things, I think are important for us to learn from. So God, I pray that you would help us. Help us to learn from the principles of what we find here, the spirit of the law over the letter of the law, so that we would walk in a way that is honoring and glorifying to you. Because it is very clear that when we become your followers, we become your children, as we put our trust in you, you have redeemed and saved us from the curse of the law because Jesus became a curse for us. Lord, you took our sin upon yourself upon the cross and clothed us in your righteousness. So we're justified, but you want to sanctify us. You want to remove all of the mindset and the ways and the customs and the traditions of this world from our lives. And I pray, God, that you would do that in us. Continue to transform us more and more into the likeness of your children. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.